what was the light bulb moment where you kind of decided that this was going to be your life's work? For me? Yeah. And the organization? Well, that's a good question because my intention when I started PCRF uh, back in the early 90s, 90, 91, 92, um, I didn't see it as a long-term profession. Um, I was very young myself in my early and mid-20s. And what I wanted to do was to contribute to the Palestinian people and to the Palestinian struggle um, for a couple of reasons. One, on a humanitarian basis, the, having been to Palestine and met the people and lived among them, I was very much uh, impressed by their humanity, their hospitality, the kindness of the Arab culture of the Palestinian people, even living under very extreme uh, hardships and very oppressive conditions, they never lost their humanity and kindness. And I was very impressed and wanted to show um, some sense of solidarity and support for them, uh, especially as an American with the role that my government plays in their oppression and in supporting the occupation and continuing to make that occupation possible from a military, political, and economic point of view. So as an American, I felt a special responsibility to do something for the Palestinians. And then on a larger philosophical scale, you know, I always want to do something that had meaning and purpose in my life. And um, I think contributing to a cause of freedom and justice and doing so in a way that heals the victims, particularly children, of a conflict like the Palestinian-Israeli conflict um, fulfilled a very deep purpose for me, even as a young man, trying to set a path in my life that I would one day be able to look back on with pride and with um, a sense of accomplishment that I did something in my life. Now, of course, I didn't Im ever imagine it would grow into the organization that it is today. Um, uh, but, um, you know, from the start, it was just help this child, help that child, help these kids. And um, having met my first wife and we decided, well, let's just keep going. We seem to be doing pretty well with the kind of support that people are showing and the kind of um, uh, effort people are making to be a part of it. Um, we just started to build something and it just kind of took off. Yeah, you know, it's every entrepreneur's story is really kind of, I never imagined this would reach the scale it's reached and it's really about starting to solve one challenge and then solving the next one and then before you know it, you have an organization. So. Uh, absolutely kind of what you're saying resonates with me i'd love to you know maybe even rewind the clock a bit further back and you know you mentioned that you always had this desire to drive an impact where did that come from i mean was there something in your upbringing your childhood that really kind of led to that desire i'd, I'd love to understand where that driving force came from that's a good question Tarek. um both my parents um, my father was a high school teacher. My mother was a nurse. Um, and we were, I was raised um, with very progressive parents. Uh, my father was very active on um, racial justice issues. Uh, he was someone who worked very hard um, to break down the walls of white supremacy, which are very large and very thick in the United States, institutionalized in our economy, in our society, in our political system. My father, even as a high school teacher uh, in a small town in Northeast Ohio, felt there was a role for him to play in his community, in our community, um, to be active on that. And my mother was also someone who was very compassionate and very kind and also very progressive in her political thinking. 
related to tolerance and equality and social justice. So I was brought up in a very, uh, I don't want to use the word liberal because my liberal has a lot of connotations which may not, you know, pertain to my family. My parents also worked very hard. They were also very family oriented, um, even though, you know, the family kind of broke up when my early teens. Um, That doesn't mean that the basic values that my parents had in raising us to be honest and decent and hardworking. I consider those to be liberal values, but a lot of people don't. So I'm not going to term my upbringing as being liberal. My parents were very socially progressive, and they believed in justice and equality. And they believe that you have to work for justice and equality, that it's a responsibility. It's not just terms that you throw around or you read books about or you talk about, but you go to demonstrations and you organize in your community and you're on the front line. And, uh, you know, even in the late 60s, uh, my, we lived in an all-white community that was the only place my parents could afford um to buy a house and my father realized that the our african-american brothers and sisters uh were denied access to housing in that community Mm -hmm. and he started a program to desegregate um the housing opportunities for african-americans in his community and our house was shot at somebody actually shot a shotgun um at our house one evening and that kind of underscored, you know, we are, we're a small family, well, not a small family, but a family of five in a, you know, a modest uh, home. Um, and that showed the kind of threat and impact that we can have as individuals. My father was just a high school teacher working to desegregate a community. Um, and, you know, that showed, I, I was very young, I don't remember it, I was alive. But it shows what kind of parents I had um, or have, my father's still alive, um, that ingrained in me um, this idea that social justice is part of our moral character and it's a responsibility no matter what you do uh, in your life you have a responsibility to work for justice if you see injustice and of course there's injustice everywhere yeah Um, when I started university I I read a lot I was you know someone who always I wasn't a great student but I was somebody who read a lot of books particularly related to um, history and politics and was very much attracted to people struggling for justice. Uh, I read the autobiography of Malcolm X twice when I was in my early teens and it very much moved me as a, uh, I, even as a, a white kid in Ohio, yeah. I, he very much resonated with me because he was a self-made man. He, he didn't have any opportunities in his life. Obviously I have much more as a white male, but, um, you know, he educated himself and he built his own life through hard work and through sacrifice. And I tried to model my life to a certain extent uh, on what I saw as a role model for me. And uh, and so by the time I started university, and another point which is important here is I'm from a very small town in Northeast Ohio called Kent, Ohio. Now Kent, Ohio, for people who may not know, historically, if you Google Kent State, you'll see that uh, a very significant historical event happened there uh, in in, in 1970, which is um, students at the university that I later would go to in the hometown that I would grow up in um, when the United States invaded Cambodia to cut off the Ho Chi Minh Trail and the supplies from North Vietnam to South Vietnam during the Vietnam War. Students went out and protested the expansion of the war in Vietnam. And the National Guard was called out and four students were shot dead. And it was the only time in American history um, that uh, armed uh, soldiers, National Guardsmen, went on an American university and shot dead students who were practicing free speech, who were demonstrating. I was raised in that small town, so that legacy of activism, 
of resistance, of um, being involved in issues ourselves uh, related to social justice uh, was ingrained in my community from a very early part of my life. And I later went to that university and that's where I became very much connected to the Palestinian cause and to the Palestinian issue, even before I first went to Palestine. Growing up as a, you know, as a child, what's your first recollection or first memory of an example where you had to kind of practice this, you know, I think you said uh, social, social and moral obligation. What's kind of a memory that comes to you around as you're growing up? And the first time you really had to put that to the test? Well, that's a good question. And obviously, um, you know, there were a lot of times uh, growing up um, that you see things and you hear things that um, bother you. Um, but the first one that really affected me personally uh, was the time I came back from it. it this was in uh, early um, January of 1989. So I first went to Palestine as part of a human rights delegation of college students. Uh, in December of 1988, which was the first year of the first Intifada, the first Palestinian uprising, which was an amazing time. And I can talk a little bit more about that. But when I came back to, st I went over Christmas break, over winter break, um, between fall and spring semesters of uh, my junior year in college. So I came back and started immediately after three weeks of living in the West Bank and Gaza and seeing firsthand um, the resistance to Israeli occupation, the struggle, the oppression, the courage, the humanity, the sacrifice of the Palestinian people. I came back very much as a young man, very inspired and very motivated and very um, uh, empowered to speak the truth of what I saw. And that's what people were asking me all everywhere I went from Gaza to Khalil to Nablus to Ramallah to Al-Quds was just tell people what you're seeing here and, um, and because Americans don't know. So I came back and I started a class called the History of the Middle East. And I had a professor, Saul Friedman, whose point of view on this issue was completely opposite of what I understood the truth to be. And here was a class of 50 American students. None of them virtually had any idea about what was happening on the ground in Palestine or in Israel or in the Holy Land. And this was there was a historic uprising taking place there. An unarmed population were resisting one of the world's greatest military powers every single day and paying a heavy price for it. People being killed in prison without trial, deported without trial, homes being destroyed, so on and so forth. And I came, and when I had this class, started right when I came back from my trip, History of the Middle East, uh, with Saul Friedman, professor, I argued with him every single day because I had just seen a completely different reality than he was trying to educate or inform my fellow students about. And he finally uh, became uh, tired of me arguing with him and gave me the opportunity to uh, present uh, with slides and with pictures to the class what my uh, trip to the West Bank and Gaza looked like because I obviously went there with the intention of coming back to present as a fact-finding in a way yeah. uh, my experiences yeah. and uh, I remember coming up the day that I was going to present and I had back then Tarek, you may be too young. No, I, I remember the, the projectors with the plastic. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Correct. So I'm you had these little yet. pictures that would... So the night before I organized my presentation, yeah. I you know had every picture arranged and was going to talk about refugee camps, settlements, kids with these uh, rubber bullets in their head or uh, steel-coated balls that were you know taking people's eyes. I went to the ICU and interviews with doctors. So I had everything arranged for a presentation of what I experienced and what I saw. And as I was coming up the steps, the nephew of the professor, who was also a member of the class, um, was waiting for me. And instead of 
trying to argue or debate or counter my presentation with his point of view, as one should expect at a university with a free exchange of ideas. He grabbed this tray of slides and smashed it on the ground. And uh, that and what followed then was the school newspaper trying to present it as me being um, insensitive to the point of view of um, that group of students. Whatever my point of view was, which mine was based on what I had just experienced firsthand on the ground there, something very rare for a college student in the United States, let alone a state university in Ohio, to go and see firsthand, let alone that that was, was, was being denied. We're a university, and there should be always an opportunity to exp uh, say whatever you want without intimidate, physical intimidation. Yeah. Um, but this yeah. student didn't want me to speak, so he took my slides and smashed them. And that was my first real experience of what this issue the, the powder keg uh, aspect of this issue or um, the fact that some people were willing to resort to violence rather than just in a free exchange of ideas and finding a solution based on what's best for everyone, what works for humanity, what is, what are our values and how do our values mesh with what's currently going on on the ground there. So um, that was my first real experience with what I was going to have to deal with. And actually, I remember thinking very clearly, OK, is this an issue? Because I was already an activist on this issue of Palestine. I had already spoken a lot and written a lot in the school newspaper about it. And I remember thinking, am I because I came back so, so energized by by the by the people that I met and the struggle that I believed in. I told myself, is it worth it? Because you're going to be called an anti-Semite. You're going to be attacked in this case, even physically. Um, you're not going to have a career. Uh, in any kind of mainstream, op, you know, occupation, whether it's journalism, whether it's academia, whatever, uh, law, um, are you willing to make that sacrifice? And I told myself, yes, I don't have any desire to be part of mainstream, any kind of mainstream occupation that would force me to um, not support justice and not speak the truth and not stand with people struggling for freedom. And as somebody who's born free, my forefathers had to defend and fight and liberate this country from colonialism. And my forefathers had to free our African-American brothers and sisters from slavery. And um, that comes with a responsibility. Uh, I didn't have to sacrifice for freedom. I was born with this great opportunity. And, but it comes with a great responsibility of standing with those who are not free. And there's no people in the world who deserve freedom more than the Palestinians. And the fact that as an American, uh, my government and my tax money goes directly to denying Palestinians that freedom was something that bothered me very deeply. And I felt that I wanted to work for and dedicate my life to serving them. I didn't know how, um, but that was something that uh, at that point of being physically attacked, I made a decision I was going to continue because... If somebody's willing to attack you physically from just speaking the truth, then you must be doing something right. And um, I think that's the highest form of fascism. And it's also should give you the highest form of uh, motivation to keep going. You know, I think to a certain extent, um, in every entrepreneur's story, there's this moment where there, there's that question, you know, do I, do, I, do I fight the good fight or do I just take the path that's easier uh, to take and you know I, I applaud you for for many things but just hearing your story it sounds like that point was really kind of a critical decision point in your life to say is this something I'm, I'm willing to 
you know, put my life on the line for. And, you know, I applaud you for moving along the good fight. And we're, we're lucky that you made that decision. One thing I wonder sometimes is when someone's very stubborn and passionate about a achieving a goal what is the driving force that keeps them going when everything kind of goes dark or when they face obstacles and so i'm curious to know what that driving factor is for you that's a good question and i think there's many of them yeah i think the most important driving force for me is having so many firsthand experiences on the ground in palestine and seeing the courage of everyday people who I have the privilege and honor of interacting with and working with and serving, um, they've kept their humanity. They've kept their ability to stay human and their core values, their morality, their ethics remain powerful and pure. And those are the people I work for. Uh, those are the people I want to serve. I'm not here to serve any government. I'm not here to serve even any institution, even the one I founded and built for 30 years. If something was to change in that organization, I would change myself because, I, I mean, not my core ethics. I would continue to serve yeah. the greater cause yeah. of the people and particularly the children who deserve a better future and who are being denied a better future, not because they did anything wrong, but because they happen to be Palestinians living in a land covenanted by somebody else. So I get my motivation and my steadfastness, if that's what you want to call it, Samoon, yeah. uh, from the Palestinian people that I work with and I serve. And also the volunteers that are part, who believe in me and believe in my leadership and believe in um, the organization that we work together in. The doctors who leave their comfortable lives in New Zealand or the U.S. or Chile or wherever they come from. Um, to come and operate on kids as volunteers. I mean, those people inspire me and give me so much uh, courage and determination. Um, and that's where that comes from. Uh, and, you know, this is a, this is a cause uh, not only of people deserving better lives and children being denied um, opportunities to be free, but also um, it's a cause of freedom. And as I said before, I was born free. And I strongly believe and was raised to believe that that comes with a responsibility. And I'm very fortunate that my work is also healing people and providing children life-saving care in many cases. Um, but whatever the work that I do, serving a cause of freedom and justice is a privilege and an honor and a huge, huge responsibility. And I have to keep going no matter what challenges I face in my life. And I faced huge challenges personally and professionally, but I have to keep going and not give up and never lose sight of the bigger picture, which is the cause and the people that I'm serving. One thing I'm, I'm kind of hearing you say really is having that higher purpose and that bigger understanding of, of, of what you're trying to serve, where you're trying to serve and what you're trying to accomplish is, is really the best fuel to have in your, in your engine. Uh, to keep going. I guess, how did, um, in your words, I'm, I'm kind of rephrasing here, you know, for the lack of a better word, a privileged white kid in in Ohio end up getting so attached to the Palestinian cause? Oh, gosh. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know if I can ever really articulate it or explain it in clear language because I honestly, in some ways, don't even know. I just <laughs> feel very comfortable from the moment I went there and certainly now 
um, I don't feel like I'm a stranger in Palestine. I don't feel like I'm an outsider there. Obviously, I am. Um, but I've never felt that way. And that's partly um, because the people are very welcoming. Um, but also, just it just seems like a very natural fit for me, um, a very natural environment, spiritually, um, psychologically, personally, in every way. I've never felt that I was somehow um, alien to the culture or to the people, even though I obviously am. Um, and that's made it a lot easier to go um, and to land and to be immediately in Palestine and just feel like you're home. And I do. When I go to Palestine, I feel like I'm at home. That's obviously uh, uh, makes it a lot easier. I don't know of any other place in the world where I can leave the place I grew up in and the environment of my actual home uh, and go to a place where the language is different, the culture is different, everything is different and to feel completely and absolutely comfortable and at peace and at home at where I'm at. So, and that's how I feel about Palestine. That's amazing. How that happened, I'm not exactly sure, but that's the way I feel. Yeah, it must be, it must be a higher force that, you know, was at play. I think so. I mean, look, if you come at peace with what your mission in life is and what your, um, how you envision your purpose, and I came at peace a long time ago with that, um, everything kind of falls into place. You know, I don't think you'll ever, with all of the challenges that life has, particularly in this kind of work, we're working in a very complicated, challenging political environment, logistical challenges, cultural challenges, um, dealing with sick kids who have very complicated medical issues, and so on and so forth. Um, those challenges are minuscule when you find your place and your purpose, and you feel that you're fulfilling your mission in life and that's how i feel about the work that i do you, you know i have no ambitions you, you to do know. anything else basically mm. people are always like well you should think about this you know whatever politics or something i have no interest in doing anything other than what i'm doing serving palestine i have other ways i would like to serve palestine i have lots of ideas that could possibly have a positive impact in other ways that i've that i'm currently having one in but uh, the service of palestine is i would be completely and absolutely fulfilled in my life if that's all i ever did and most people, you know, go through life without really cracking what that mission is, right? And I think it's it's sad to continue to live life and only realize at a, at a much later stage that all along we've been living someone else's story or, or not even having found our true purpose and mission in life. And, you know, for people who kind of wrestle with that idea of, you know, what is my purpose? What is my mission? What would you say to them in terms of how they find how do you set go go about finding that mission or that purpose? I mean, honestly, I really feel for young people today because I think it's harder than ever um, to find your purpose because you have so much exposure to what the world looks like. You also have so many opportunities and so many expectations with social media and with just a, kind of a very smaller global planet that we live on with being able to travel and the access that's available today. It's really hard for kids to just say, I'm going to focus on this. You have to deal with the expectations of your community, of your family, of yourself. Um, you have exposure to everything, so it's very hard to just focus on one thing and say, I'm just going to work on this. What if I, what if I fail? Because people's lives are so open now and so public now, um, you know, and the way that social media constantly presents people in a positive way and everybody's life is great and you know, they're enjoying the, their best lives and, and living their best lives. It's very hard to go through the 
failures that are part of life at an early age of 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 not succeeding and, and the risk of not succeeding and the embarrassment and the humiliation and the disappointment that you can feel and others can feel for you um, when you're not succeeding. But if you fail one time and 10 times or whatever the number is, that doesn't mean that you're going to fail ultimately. And starting PCRF in the early years, I had a ton of failures and everyone does when you start something from nothing, from scratch, an institution, an organization, a company, whatever it is. I don't know anyone who doesn't go through periods of questioning the decision and also experiencing tremendous challenges and failures in many cases. And I certainly had that. But in the early 90s, it was a different world than we live in today. And I can see the challenges that young people have um, today compared to when I was their age with coming to terms with what is their purpose, finding their purpose, and then pursuing their purpose. And, um, and uh, whatever advice I would have is to just, you know, first of all, young people need to travel. They need to uh, experience other cultures and um, get out of their comfort zone and, you know, sleep under bridges, uh, you know, in Europe or Africa or wherever you can travel and, and have these kind of amazing experiences, life experiences, um, you know, watch the sunrise and just think deeply about um who you are and your place in the universe and what makes you happy and what would make you happy and then try to pursue that and try to be as singularly focused on um, building what that life looks like and um, I think if, if, if we can stop worrying about going to the best schools and um, you know getting the best grades although I'm sure that's important in some ways um, what really matters is what kind of person you have, what kind of drive you have, what kind of ability you have to overcome the challenges that come up in life, the failures, the naysayers, um, you know, the, the, the um, challenges that people are constantly going to put at you and life's going to put at you. Uh, are you going to be able to keep going or are you going to just drop out and go to something more comfortable? Everybody's different and everybody's differently evolved as people, as spiritually, and um, in every other way. And it's important for us to build ourselves first before we try to build anything else. That takes getting out of your comfort zone. That takes life experience. And life experience comes through going out and living life. Take time off to, to travel. Take time off to meet new people and go meet new cultures and go and see what life is like in other places and how people live and and what you want to do. And I think that's how people can better determine their life purpose and life mission. I really love what you said there. I wrote it down, you know, really focusing on building ourselves before we build anything else. I think that's, that's beautiful and it's spot on. There's so much pressure on young people today. I mean, I can see it. I have daughters and, uh, you know, the idea that you have to go to the best schools and you have to have this amazing CV or whatever you want to call it before you apply for school. And it's just so much pressure. And you can see that it's having a tremendous impact on young people when it comes to mental health issues that particularly in the states but i think it's everywhere so much pressure on young people and um i don't think that's healthy i don't think it gives them a chance to evolve and mature and develop and i think you know we as the older generation have failed them to um, guide them towards a more evolved spiritual path 
which will give them opportunities to have more fulfilling lives and be happier. Uh, young people shouldn't have this epidemic of mental health issues that we see today, but they do. And that's sad. And that's something that's very concerning for me because they won't have a chance to grow up and find their purpose and their place in life if we don't give them that space and that opportunity. Everything you, you kind of hit on, uh, I think, resonates with me kind of growing up and just... I grew up, social media was near the tail end of my university career, and I can't even fathom the impact that's having on the younger generation where you know, that's status quo for them. And um, I guess I'd like to kind of take a little bit of a, of, of a diversion here and really understand from you the moment you decided to start the PCRF. In 1990, um, I, w I first went back to Palestine after I finished university to work as a writer, as a freelance writer, okay. to kind of try to share um, the stories of people I was meeting on the ground in Palestine every day, the amazing people who um, changed my life. Um, you know, and I wanted to educate Americans because I think the biggest challenge we have, and it continues today, although it's to a lesser extent, is the lack of knowledge and insight and awareness that Americans have about the rest of the world, and particularly Palestine, I think is also, you balance the fact that Americans are ignorant about the rest of the world with a very concerted effort to uh, paint this issue yeah. by people who have uh, the ability to form uh, ideas uh, through mainstream media and all forms of media um, against what the, Pal what the realities of life is like for Palestinians. So I wanted to kind of try to just to I like writing. I thought I was okay at it and I went back to work as a writer uh, and to share stories and I did I learned a lot doing that but during the course of working as a freelance writer in Palestine during the first Intifada um, one of the work one of the things I like to do I didn't like to do it but I felt obligated to do it was to share some of the stories of kids who were being injured and I remember hearing about a boy who had had his legs and hand blown off by an Israeli bomb uh, from Al-Khalil, who was in the hospital with his sister, who was also injured, less so, but still injured. And I went up to the hospital, Makassid, on the Mount of Olives, and met them, and found this amazing, amazing spirit of a child. I mean, he was just, I think, 11 or 12 years old, but full of light, and full of energy, and full of just so much humor, and so much character for a boy who still had bandages on his stumps, where his legs used to be, and on his stump, where his hand used to be. And I remember thinking, I, I befriended him and a lot of the kids who were in his room with him, other injured kids from Gaza and from other parts of the West Bank, um, and did a story about him. But I also remember thinking, okay, uh, this kid's beautiful spirit is going to slowly be uh, diminished uh, over time as the rest of his life is in a wheelchair. He came from a very poor family, and the prospects of getting treatment there through their resources and contacts was minuscule. Um, and I said, well, also you have an obligation to try to help him. You saw something, you saw a child who needs help, now help him. That's how I was raised. So I went, at that time I was not making a living as a writer. I was writing a lot and I was getting stuff published, but it was mainly in a couple of publications which didn't provide enough to live off of. So what I would do is I would work all spring, summer, and most of the fall as a landscaper in Ohio, which was a seasonal job, save my money and go back in Palestine in the winter when it's not possible to work seasonally as a landscaper and work as a writer. So it was time to go back to Ohio to, I'd run out of money 
and uh, to go back home and save money so I could come back to Palestine and continue trying to build a life. And I took a photograph of this boy and met some doctors in Akron, were nearby where I'm from, and just asked them if we could help this kid. You know, I met him. I'd like to bring him over and get him treatment. He can't get treatment there. And they agreed. And within a short period of time, uh, I was able to bring him and his sister uh, over. And um, I worked with uh, some college students, some Palestinians at Kent State, who I'd befriended and who we were trying to educate our fellow students by doing a lot of different, um, you know, public awareness work in the university. We raised money to bring them. I went back in May of 1990 and brought him over and his sister without their parents. They were just children. I didn't speak the language. They didn't speak English, obviously, but we managed. And the Palestinian community in Northeast Ohio responded. They took care of these kids. They housed them. They took them to their appointments. They were on the front page of the newspaper, the Cleveland Plain Dealer and the Akron Beacon Journal, which between the two um, have a circulation of over a million people or at least, you know, a huge number of. And back then, that's that was the main media. And they were also on the local news. So that's what I wanted to do as a journalist was to I wasn't a journalist because I wanted to write and you know, tell both sides of the story. Here's this boy who had his legs blown off. Let's go ask the commander of the army as to why they threw a bomb. I wasn't interested in being that kind of journalist. I was trying to educate people as an activist. Um, and when these kids were on the front page of the newspaper, they were the first injured Palestinian kids to come to the U.S. for treatment ever by anyone. And I was just 23, 24 years old at the time. Um, and uh, they were now being seen. Americans were for the first time seeing the other side. They were seeing the humanity and the human aspect, the human cost of the Palestinian uprising and the Israeli occupation. And it was my intention was to educate people. And this was a great way to educate people. Um, most importantly, it was a great way to help these kids. And within a short period of time, they both got the treatment they needed and went back home walking. But during the course of that period of those kids being in the States, the first two injured Palestinians to ever come to the U.S., it galvanized and brought the Palestinian community together, unified people, Christian, Muslims, people from all over, from refugee camps or from wealthy families, working class Palestinians, professional Palestinians. They all organized themselves to support these kids. And I said, this is what we need. We need unity. And we need our community to not just be frustrated or discouraged by their leadership or the lack of opportunities to serve their cause, uh, but give them opportunities to do something. So when these kids went back home, I found other kids. People heard about them and came to me with kids, actually, who needed treatment. <laughs> and I started placing them in American hospitals because American hospitals with a free health with a uh, free market health system that we have in the U.S. It's not socialized medicine like Europe. Individual CEOs of hospitals can accept these kids on their own. It's not like in Italy or in France or in the UK where it's Ministry of Health, it's bureaucracy, it's government, and it's not accessible to non-citizens. In the US, every hospital can say, I'll treat any child for free or not. So I started finding these kids who needed treatment and placing them in American hospitals. And the exact same thing took place, similar to the first two kids I brought to Ohio, which is the community got involved, people uh, organized, they took care of these kids. And I said, this is an amazing opportunity to help children who can't get help in Palestine, um, educate Americans uh, to a cause that they should be aware of, because it's our tax money that's causing these injuries, and organize the communities around uh, doing something positive to show real results. These kids come with injuries, they go home better. And finally, of course, was the spiritual component we already talked about. It was very fulfilling. It gave me a purpose in my life to do something meaningful and impactful. I went around to all the organizations in the U.S. and I said, I have this idea. I want to bring Palestinian kids, all the Arab American organizations yeah. that existed at that time. And I couldn't get any of them to support a program. And all I wanted to do was just um, get them to cover the basic costs of bringing kids, plane tickets and whatever else was involved, logistics. 
Um, and I couldn't get any of the organizations to support it. So I decided to start my own nonprofit to see if we could take care of getting more kids out. And so we started an organization. I wanted the name Palestine in it because I'm very nationalistic. And Palestine at that time was, you weren't allowed to say it. You weren't allowed to raise the flag or whatever. So uh, we started an organization called Palestine Children's Relief Fund, registered as a nonprofit tax-exempt organization, and then just started working and started doing as much as we could. You know, this is before the internet, before communication became instantaneous. I had a typewriter, I had a fax machine. Um, that was how I communicated or by letters to doctors. So it was, you know, it wasn't as efficient as it is today. Um, but we started getting a lot of kids out and it just grew. And then I met my first wife um, in Palestine, who was a social worker and um, through the work. And she, when we got married, we just built the organization together. She took care of the kids. She took care of a lot of the public relations in the community, speaking Arabic and being somebody from Palestine. And I did a lot of the, you know, logistics and admin and fundraising. And we were just a team that built the organization. And then so many people became involved. And that's the the short story for a very long, long, much further detailed uh, success story of building an organization with a lot of people who deserve thanks and appreciation. Uh, Particularly at the beginning, I can mention too, Dr. Musa and Suhaila Nasser, when I started PCRF, I was close to... it was close to failure. And, you know, as I said, we failed many times, but it was to the point where, you know, I had a triple amputee boy from Gaza uh, who was in Los Angeles and I couldn't get anybody in the community there to help. Uh, I didn't know anybody. Um, He was staying with my sister in Chinatown. This was just, or Koreatown, excuse me, just after the um, 1992 uh, Rodney King riots. I don't want to call riots after his name, but this kind of shows you they were the riots as a result of the beating of Rodney King yeah. in 1992, which yeah. burned Los Angeles down. And I had this poor boy from Gaza He's who like, just had I, his I legs. Left Palestine. Palestine. <laughs> yeah. came to another war it's zone. Even, it's even worse here. What did you do to me, Steve? Exactly. And he was with my sister who was like 26 and didn't speak Arabic at all and never been to Palestine. But I couldn't find anybody to help. So I wrote a letter to all of these like people in Los Angeles from the, who are prominent in the Palestinian community. And there were two who responded, one family, Dr. Musa and Suhaila Nasser. And they were the ones who were like came forward right when I was ready to be like, look, if the Palestinians don't want to help a boy without legs and a hand uh, to get treatment for free that I arranged from the Intifada, then I'm not sure I can continue. But they stepped up right when I was like, oh, this is looking pretty bad. And I, did, I always say, you know, these two people, these great humanitarians deserve recognition and appreciation for kind of saving the organization when it was just starting. But there's so many more than that. There's literally hundreds, if not thousands of people all over the world who've been so involved in this organization in every aspect who deserve appreciation and recognition for their service. You know, when we were talking a little bit earlier, you know, I was trying to dig into, you know, in those moments of, I don't want to call it weakness, but let's call it doubt, right? Moments of doubt in, in your mission. It's amazing how sometimes something unexpected comes out of nowhere and just, just to kind of reiterate and reinforce that you're on the right path and that, you know, keep doing what you're doing. And so that's beautiful to hear that in that moment when you needed it most, those two individuals kind of rose to the occasion to shine a light and say, you're doing the right thing, keep doing it. I have many stories where right when you're at a critical point of success or failure, even on a small scale, um, something came forward to show you that you're not alone, (laughs) that there is some higher force guiding you. 
And I believe that. I know it sounds wishy-washy or whatever, but I truly believe that um, when you're doing good work selflessly to serve others, um, that doors open to make that work possible. And uh, you just need to just keep working and never give up. And that's what I've always done. I don't have a lot of um, attributes uh, in the sense of I you don't know, have a great education. Uh, I'm not uh, uh, you know as smart as a lot of people that I meet. But the one thing that I am willing to admit about myself is that I work very hard and that I have a very single-minded purpose in just keep working and don't stop. And I think that can overcome a lot of shortcomings that you may have in your uh, background um, to be enable you to be successful. I can't even imagine uh, the number of obstacles and speed bumps and hoops you had to kind of jump through to get the organization to, to where it is today. But I'd love to maybe hear from your perspective a couple of stories where along the way, stories that are quite memorable for you and, and stick, stick out as you reflect on the history of the organization where you faced obstacles that you really felt like this might be, you know, this might be one of those that, that brings us down or one of those that breaks me as, a, as a, a leader trying to build such an aspirational organization. I'd love to kind of hear, you know, a story or two of, of along the way and really kind of how you overcame those. I'll give you a small one and I'll give you a, a big one. Okay. I'll start with the small one, which actually uh, goes from the very beginning. And when I was first taking these two injured kids out of Palestine, the first kids who ever came to the U.S. for treatment, I had to cross the bridge to Jordan uh, with them. And I had never crossed from the West Bank to Jordan before, so I had no idea how the bridge worked or anything about it. I just know as Palestinians, they had to go through Jordan. Uh, so I was at the bridge and I had zero money on me because as I told you before, <laughs> I, I wasn't somebody, I mean, I started from nothing in this whole effort. And so I got to the bridge. And I'm just like, okay, we have a, somebody arranged like the relatives of this kid. These kids have family who will meet us on the other side. We just need to cross. And when I got to the bridge, there was an exit tax. And I was like, Oh, I don't have any money. I didn't, wasn't aware that there were, you had to pay a tax to get out of the country. It was not something you have in the U S or any other place as far as I know. So we got to the bridge and they were needed like, I don't know, $30 for each of us to get out. And I just stood there in shock because I had no money on me. I didn't have credit cards um, and I didn't have any way to get money. And I was standing there with these two kids, uh, both in wheelchairs and children. And uh, just, I remember being very nervous and also like there's just being a fog around me. And then I just remember, it's a faint memory because it was so long ago, this kind of face of this man coming out of this like fog in my mind and just saw that I was in distress and asked what was the problem. And I told him, you know, I have these kids, I'm taking them to America for treatment, but I don't have money to pay the tax to get them out. And he just went and paid it for us. And then he just disappeared. And I think he was, I don't remember exactly, he was just an older man who was with uh maybe one of the pilgrim groups or, uh, you know, these religious groups that visit the Holy Land. He just came up, saw that uh, the look on my face and just paid our tax. And I was, we were able to leave. And had he not done that, we would have had to turn around and go back to these kids' homes in, in Khalil. And I have no idea how we would have gotten out. So that that's one small story of just kind of like, as I said, you know, there's always these kind of angels that come out and make things possible mm -hmm. for you when you feel that, 
all is lost or hopeless. And then, of course, there's the bigger one in my life personally was uh, the passing of my first wife, Huda al-Nasri, who was for 17 years the monumental force of building this organization, more than me. Um, she had the character. She had the personality. She had the intelligence. And um, was just such a good person, such a good humanitarian. She had such a great sense of humor. Everybody who met her loved her and respected her. Um, and she was a very, very decent, ethical person. And we were in Dubai in, uh, on Christmas Day of, uh, 1990, of 2008. Uh, we had six kids there being treated in Dubai at the time. Um, and she was sick. She had been sick for six weeks on and off with the flu-like symptoms and had taken antibiotics and, you know, didn't, she was a strong, proud woman. So, you know, the classic, I'm not going to the doctor. I'll just keep, I'll just suck it up. But we were in a we were at the American Hospital, or no, we were in the American Hospital. We were at the Emirates Hospital, and um, with these kids getting checkups. And I said, just go get blood work done. Maybe you have some kind of infect viral infection or something, because she'd just been sick for so long. We had my two daughters. I had a two-year-old and a, a twelve-year-old at the time, and I just took them across the street to the park and um, waited for her. And um, she came back you know, and met us at the park and she had a terrible look of fear on her face. And she said, you know, they told me I have leukemia. And we went to the American hospital uh, in Dubai and they put her in the ICU and they did another blood test with her. And I just remember the oncologist who came and spoke with us, who was a Palestinian guy. And he said, yeah, she has cancer. You can't treat it here. You need to go back to the States and start treatment immediately. So um, we went and took a plane as quickly as we could and got back to the States and an ambulance took her from the airplane to the hospital. And uh, within six months she was dead. And, uh, you know, that was a challenge to say the least. And, uh, thank you. And, you know, I had to decide then what to do with my life and to be a single dad and, um, to raise two girls who their mom was their role model Yeah, and, you know, to keep going and to not give up. And, uh, but I also wanted to keep doing the work that we had started and built together to honor her. And to, like I said, this is work is more important than, um, it's not just a job and it's not just an occupation. It's, it's a life mission. So I continued and I even tried more to make the organization better and stronger and wider and in her honor and in her legacy. And I hope I've succeeded in doing that. But that was obviously the greatest challenge of my life and one that tested me um, at every level, spiritually and every other possible way you could think of. Thanks for sharing that story. I mean, it's very uh, touching. Uh, I'm, I'm in tears on the other side. I, I feel really touched by your story. So thanks for sharing that. I think we're all uh, fortunate and better for it, for the fact that you decided to keep on going uh, and continue to build the PCRF. One thing we didn't really touch on is... Uh, and, and I think it's the, the, the story of, of many different disruptors, innovators, such as yourself, is getting other people to buy into your vision uh, in order to keep going, right? And I think one beautiful thing about the PCRF is it's galvanized so many people to support the cause and support the organization. Uh, and I think so many pe people feel connected to it, even though they may not have met you or they may not have you know met any of the amazing uh 
children that that you've supported you know, you know I, I personally have had i've been fortunate enough to meet you twice and and some of the kids that that you've brought to to dubai and when you think about galvanizing that support or building a vision and getting people to buy into that vision when you look back at it what, what made you so successful in this in this effort i think being an american that serves a cause that's not mine i'm not Palestinian, although I do carry a Palestinian passport now. It's a different story. And I'm proud to. Uh, <laughs> but I'm not Palestinian. Yeah. I think Palestinians are always very um, uh, happy and very proud to see non-Palestinians serve their cause and serve their people. So that helped. No question about it. Although there's was always the whispers of why is he doing this? Is he CIA or what's he getting out of it? That's a true, that's a true Arab, uh, yeah. Arab characteristic. Yeah, and then I got married to a Palestinian woman, so they're like, okay, he's, he's legit. So I think that's part of it. And then, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years, so people see that, you know, I've tried to live a very transparent life. Um, and I think if, you know, if you follow me on social media, um, I don't hide anything about, I, I want people to see um, something different on how life is lived and to share, uh, you know, my family, but also the work on the ground and and I think people feel comfortable that they know who I am and they know that I'm I'm far from perfect. I'm not insinuating that, but that I'm I am who I say I am. And I am a trustworthy person with the only intention of of doing good for, for the Palestinian cause and for children. You know, I'm happy I'm so proud of my wife right now, my second wife. I was a single father for seven years raising my girls and then was very fortunate um, to have met my second wife, Zena, who is a, ironically, or I'm not sure if it's ironic, <laughs> but she's a doctor who treats cancer. Yeah. Uh, and my first wife died of cancer. So um, I'm very proud that she's over helping kids from Ukraine. I think, you know, what's happening there is very similar to what's happening in Palestine. It's this effort to erase a nation, to deny them their identity uh, through violence. Uh, it's obviously many significant differences between the two as well, but the very, very, the fundamentals are the same. And I'm proud that she's serving that cause as well. But of course, both of us are dedicated 100% to serving Palestine uh, in a positive way. Um, and I think people see that and they see that I'm sincere and they see, you know, the intricacies and the details of my life. And I think people that develops a certain sense of confidence and trust, the organization and the work that we do. And I hope that that is something that people can continue to feel confident uh, about me and my integrity, um, that I will never, never compromise my integrity or my values or my ethics for any purpose other than serving Palestine and this cause in a positive way, being honest, being um, open, and um, connected to the people that I'm serving. Uh, I'm not somebody who likes to sit in an office or enjoys any kind of special title or recognition. I like being in the field. The happiest for me is being in the cancer departments that we built, particularly the one after my first wife in Bethlehem, or just in on the ground in Gaza and you know being with the kids that we've helped and who I have personal relationships with. That's where I get the greatest pleasure in my life. It's not any title or any recognition or, you know, sitting with this minister or that. I don't care about any of that stuff. I just care about um, connecting with the people that we're helping and, and showing them the respect that they deserve uh, because they've been so disrespected their entire lives. 
and um, and I want to show them the love and compassion and solidarity that they deserve. You come across as a very Zen, like a Zen master, and uh, mashallah. Never been called that before, <laughs> by the way. You seem, you know, mashallah. You seem very calm, cool, collected, and I can imagine that over the course of the last thirty years, there must have been a lot of small things, big things that probably tested your patience, um, especially when you're dedicated to such an amazing cause. I can imagine that people, um, politics, process gets in the way of, of doing the work. And so in those moments, how have you been able to kind of keep your composure, keep your ability to see through, see, go back to your purpose or go back to your mission and not let those things really uh, overshadow or what you're really focused on doing? Well, I mean, in all honesty, um, I'm not always the best with patience and with, um, um, you know, communicating in the right way. Sometimes, at least, you know, I always feel, and, you know, I like to depend on and work with people who can guide me, and especially on a spiritual level. Um, you know, I have a few people, particularly my wife, uh, who's very evolved and has always a very clear mind when it comes to, um, dealing with problems and challenges. But one thing that I've always tried to tell myself is there's two kinds of challenges, ones that you can change and ones that are out of your control. And the ones that are out of your control are not the ones that you should get worked up about or you should lose your patience about or you shouldn't over any of them. But, um, you know, when I go when I went to the border coming back into Palestine a couple years ago and was denied entry, by the Israelis and my daughter was in Ramallah waiting for me staying with my first wife's family and they said no go back um, I didn't have control over that I mean that was not something that was a decision-making that I could change um, so I didn't overreact I just went and did what I had to do to to get back in but there's also other challenges that are kind of man-made uh, that we face every day and how we respond to those challenges um, and all challenges, but particularly ones that you can control, uh, are the ones that um, define who you are. And I'm always trying to learn and grow and be a better person when it comes to dealing with some of the challenges that come up that either I create or created around me by others who I need to respond to. And um, I'm learning every day, particularly from, <laughs> from my wife, but others who help guide me to be um, more um, conscious of the way that I respond to people and to challenges that are coming up every day that um, that I can control or I can change and impact through proper um, action and proper communication and proper response. You're in a very unique situation, which which is you're dealing with children who are in need, but you also have to kind of have the business sense and the focus to be able to help them in that moment of need to solve complex problems, whether they're logistical, funding, you know, different types of problems. And so how do you balance being empathetic and emotional with also kind of being logical and laser focused on solving these types of problems? That's obviously always a challenge in all of our daily lives is, you know, what's the proper way of uh, responding. So um, my priorities are always um, the kids. And uh, I know that sounds like a generic uh, response, but um, I never want to see bureaucracy in our organization or in my actions or procedures 
um, deny children the care and help that they need. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. Uh, when I was in Gaza last month, um, someone sent me on Twitter a direct message saying, you know, I, there's this little girl he, there who was paralyzed in the bombings last May of Gaza. Can you go see if you can help her? And uh, of course, uh, that's why I started this organization more than any other reason um, was to help these ki these kind of kids. So I went, uh, you know, we I contacted a, fr a kid that I had helped, no longer a kid, he's a guy with children now, but 30 years ago, he was a nine-year-old who was shot in the leg and in Gaza, and I brought to Ohio, and he stayed with me, and we've stayed friends since, so now we're almost the same age. Um, but I asked him, hey, you know, I'd like to visit this kid. Can you find this girl in Gaza, and then when I'm there, we'll go together and visit her? And he said, sure. Thank you, Munir. We went and visited her, and there's this beautiful five-year-old girl. I have a four-year-old. Obviously, um, you know, there's some emotional aspect, not only on a human level, but also one that you can relate to, having a, a child the same age, a daughter the same age. I went and I found this five-year-old girl who's paralyzed from the waist down, from, you know, having her home bombed last May. The rest of her life, she'll be paralyzed. And she was just coloring like my daughter colors and singing songs like my daughter sings songs and smiling and happy in life. And... I said, what? I can't help her walk again. I immediately contacted a neurosurgeon who was in Nablus for us working, Samar al-Baba, uh, and he said, sorry, you know, he saw the x-rays, but, you know, these kind of injuries, are, there's no yet medicine that can get this child walking again, no surgical operation, no treatment. But there's other ways you could help. Um, you know, she suffers from mental health issues as a result of, of being traumatized. She needs, her family's very poor. They need some kind of support economically. And uh, so that's where I said, I don't care what's going to happen, uh, you know, what the process is. She needs help right away. And that's how I try to treat all of the work that I do and the kids that I'm, the organization's trying to help is to not let bureaucracy or, okay, you can't help her with our main mission, which is providing surgery for children, but there's other ways you can help. And so I believe very strongly in always finding a solution to whatever the problem is, even when there isn't an obvious solution. There's other ways you can help. And at the end of the day, even if it's just showing kindness and compassion and love for that child and for that family, that means a lot. You know, the worst feeling for people, particularly in Gaza, is that they're alone, that the lives of their children don't matter, that people don't care, that their little beautiful children, daughters, can be paralyzed at the age of five and no one's going to do anything to help. That's one thing I will never compromise is my responsibility to always trying to help and support these kids no matter what. That's amazing. And as you think about building the PCRF for the long run, how have you approached building an organization that outlasts you and, you know, drives an impact well beyond just Steve and, and those that are involved in it today? Yeah, this is a critical question. It's a good question. And I think to... Um, this organization has grown so much recently in the last, you know, since my, f my first wife passed away, that's really when so much attention was brought on this organization and, um, people started to connect with us on a human level because of our story, you know, an American guy marries a Palestinian woman. They build this organization together to help other kids. She gets sick, you know, she passes away. I keep going. So that's a very human story and one that resonates, um, and it brought a huge amount of awareness to the work that we're doing. But it's not about me and for this organization to continue the mission because there's going to be a need in the next generation or many generations to continue to serve the Palestinian children. 
um, there needs to be an institutionalization process. And we've been going through that for some time now in the organization. I'm very happy about that. I want this organization to become institutionalized and to have a succession plan and to grow. So, you know, in 10 years or 20 years or whatever amount of time that I'm not able to do it or tomorrow, you know, the organization will continue to be healthy and to grow and to reflect the values of, of our community and to continue to serve as we have for 30 years. So we're doing that. There's some challenges that we're facing, but uh, hopefully we'll overcome them soon and um, ensure that we stay on the right path towards um, being a transparent, democratic, and impactful organization serving these noble people and this very noble, sacred cause. Steve, where do, where do our listeners learn more about what you're doing and what the organization is doing? Yeah, well, you can visit our website on PC, at pcrf.net. Um, that's where we update, obviously, our work, and you can see the different kind of activities. We do have so many different ones. Um, you also can follow PCRF on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. We obviously try to stay up on all the platforms. Um, and I also am very active on social media as well, so you can just try to you know, follow me, whatever you want, on Facebook or Instagram or whatever. I have open open platforms and you know i share obviously a lot of our work and my you know presence on the ground in places like palestine or gaza and the west bank i always try to um stay connected to the people and to the cause and share that experience because the palestinian people are beautiful amazing people who i have so much respect for and the cause is one that is a very human cause that whether you're palestinian or american or from anywhere on the world should resonate with you, being able to live free and to be safe and secure uh, in your country and in your land is one that I think every human being can relate to. You don't have to be Palestinian to be sensitive or uh, supportive of the Palestinian cause. Uh, so you can follow us on any of the platforms, follow me personally, or more importantly, the organization through our website and through our social media platforms. Steve, this has uh, been truly one of the highlights of my short podcasting career, but it's been on the wish list to be able to spend such quality time with you. Um, I met you for the first time in maybe 2006 or 2005, and I'm Palestinian, I'm from Akka, and so uh, I'm Palestinian American. Um, and so, you know, what you, what you do uh, every day uh, resonates with so many people and with me personally. And I think all of humanity is better for the work you're you're doing, and so I'm 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 humbled, and it's an honor to have spent, you know, the better part of an hour with you today. So I really appreciate you for taking the time to have this conversation, but more importantly, appreciate everything you've sacrificed and you've done to support the Palestinian people. Thank you for saying that, Tarek. Nothing I have done has been anywhere near the sacrifice that Palestinians have to endure every single day. It's been an honor and a privilege for me to serve this cause, and I do appreciate you giving me an opportunity to share the work that uh, PCRF does and my story, and I'm happy to support uh, the good work you're doing as well in any way I can. So thank you. Thanks a ton, Steve. Thank you.